Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. And hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy International Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, to another episode, reminding you that you can catch any episode on any audio platform as well as YouTube. You can subscribe and rate the podcast. It will help us tremendously. We thank you for that. We have another amazing guest today, uh, Mr. Dimitris Tsarukas. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you're a busy man. You've been uh, flying all over the globe. Uh, <laughs> whereabouts are you now? No, I'm, I'm back in the States now. I, I had to, to go to Europe for a while, but I'm back. So, yeah. you, you, you teach at uh, the Bill Kent University in Turkey. You're also teaching at Virginia Tech. Uh, I don't even want to imagine what your schedule looks like. <laughs> <laughs> so so to, to be fair, uh, George, I'm, I'm currently only teaching at Virginia Tech. So oh, okay. okay. I'm based in the States. I'm, I'm I'm on leave from the Turkish university, so I don't have to commute between the two. Okay, so that makes it much easier for the scheduling. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you're on the program because you are an expert, obviously, in European politics. And for anyone even remotely following the news, uh, Europe is pretty much center stage right now. Uh, there's a lot going on, um, and, and I'd love to pick your brain a little bit just to get your opinion on certain things. Uh, obviously, we, I, I want to talk a little bit about the conflict happening, which is uh, affecting everyone all over the world. But before we get there, just in general, when it comes to European politics and and the EU, uh, you know, the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a little bit of instability uh, in in the in the EU, we've seen a rise in Euroscepticism. Um, there, there's been a number of challenges, always putting the EU as an institution to question, right, um, uh, the the stability and the credibility of the European Union as as an institution itself. I want to get your take on that. Um, just in general, I mean, we, we have been, it seems, almost forever in this continuous challenging era uh for the european union yeah uh definitely before coming to this uh, allow me just to say how glad i am to be part of your podcast today thanks again and uh and let me also say that i'm so glad to be doing this in in support of and in cooperation with my good old friend uh marios Thimiopoulos. i'm so glad to see that his baby that he has been sort of nourishing for so long is now flourishing and so congratulations to him and to you um, and it's great to be part of this initiative. So to go to your to your question, George, yeah, I think, you know, you're right. We, EU pundits, we call this the poly crisis, right? So we, we've had over the last 15 years, a European Union in particular and in European states in general that have been stumbling from crisis to crisis to crisis. And the worrying thing at this moment is there doesn't seem to be an, an end in sight. It's quite interesting how some countries, take Britain, for instance, took this radical decision to leave, you know, what they thought to be the sinking ship. And now they seem to be sinking even faster. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the vast majority have, have stayed and they, they put their faith on, on the EU project, probably for good reason. But they are also faced with a whole series of especially economic, but also social um, challenges. And as I mentioned, my, my worry at this moment 
certainly compounded by the war in Ukraine that you you alluded to, but this is not the only one. My worry is that we may be entering a phase in which crisis becomes the new normal. And, and, and I'm worried that this is indeed going to be the case uh, in Europe and indeed beyond, beyond Europe, uh, given how big our challenges are. Climate change is by far the most important in my eyes. Uh, we will be entering a period of chronic instability, and it is our job to try and figure out exactly what's happening and try to prescribe a way forward for that. How does how does uh, how does uh, an institution like the European Union, which let's admit it, uh, it's not to be compared with you know the U.S. or Canada, which are uh, federations or uh, or uh, confederations, but it's still under one banner, right? One country. Uh, this is different. This is a different beast. We're talking about independent states that have mutual agreements under uh, a union faced with these challenges going forward how does how does you know european the european union sustain itself and we've seen uh, some you know i mean you're mentioning britain uh, separating from the eu but we've seen other um, uh, events in the past that have brought uh, that have shook the foundation uh, of the european union we're talking you know 10 15 years ago we're talking about several countries almost at the brinks of bankruptcy we're talking about greece cyprus portugal ireland uh spain uh pushing the european union to the edge with respect to financial um uh uh support uh, uh you know now the 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 the, the growing crisis uh, with migration this is a heavy load on uh, on uh, on an institution like that that is supposed to be demonstrating the example right to the to, to the rest of the world and you're bringing up a good point we're heading into a, a phase of probably more instability how do they how do they manage this how do they uh, how do they uh, move forward with uh, with all these challenges so, so the, the thing you know there is a technical answer but I won't give you the technical answer I'll give you the more general one which which is closer to my heart. And, and the more general answer to this, George, is, look, we tend to think of the EU in precisely the way you described. And, you know, particularly us Europeans, we always hold the EU to a very high standard, right? And we say, look at it, they couldn't really run the Eurozone crisis properly. I think most of us say they handled the pandemic crisis pretty well. And, and I think also most of us are saying with the current crisis, you know, the energy cost of living crisis, the jury's out. So it's a it's a mixed bag. But but the most important point, I think, is what I just mentioned, which is that we tend to think that we have to hold the EU to a higher standard because, as you said, it's not a state uh, in the traditional sense of the term, probably doesn't want to become a state, right? I guess most Europeans don't want it to become mm -hmm. a unitary state. It, they want it to be a loose confederation, right? But they also want it to be a confederation that is actually going to be there to to, to assist them when they need help. And that's why when the pandemic crisis hit, and I've written about this with colleagues, we consider that the response of the EU to the pandemic crisis, to the coronavirus crisis, has been quite a successful one. Maybe it set a precedent. Why? Because the EU decided to act in unison. If you go back to the Eurozone crisis that you mentioned, in effect, what we had was national responses. Yes, there was the Commission and the ECB and all the supranational institutions, but in essence, we all know that Germany was calling the shots. And the worry now is we are going back after the pandemic crisis and as we enter the next crisis, you know, the 
energy cost of living crisis, we are reverting back to this nationally minded response with Germany saying, in essence, I've got the fiscal power, 200 billion euros, to make sure that I can cushion my people from the effects of the energy crisis. And as for a pan-European response, well, we'll have to wait and see, which is obviously not good enough for many other states. So I suppose the big problem here is, how do you make sure that the EU can step out of a, of a geopolitical environment in which nationalism has made a big return? Let's be, let's be no doubt here. Let's not kid ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't live in the world that the Europeans dreamt of when the Cold War was finishing. Because, you know, if you go back 30 years, the argument was, you know, the end of history and all that, right? Uh, liberal democracy and capitalism have won. There is one game in town. Every country is going to behave in pretty much the same way. And Europe is going to be well-placed to do well because, well, you know, ethnic nationalism is passé. No one cares about these things anymore. And it's all about minority right protection, yada, yada. It, it turns out this is not the world in which we live. We live in just the opposite world. And, and my fundamental point, George, around all this is my worry, because I believe in the European project, uh, that is to say for peace and, and, and welfare in Europe and around the world, my worry is Europe is not equipped. You know, It's not very well equipped to deal with this new world. We are in a world in which clearly we have planetary problems that go beyond the nation state. But at the same time, there is there is a problem of rising ethnic nationalism uh, and rising sort of nationalist responses to those problems. And Europe was not designed to do that. You know, its, it's software doesn't function very well here. Mm-hmm. And so just alluding to the war in Ukraine, many people say, well, it's time for a geopolitical Europe, right? When we got the new commission in and President Macron's initiative uh, along these lines, they're all about making the European Union something that it wasn't designed to be. The European Union was designed to be a civilian power, right? It was meant to be an economic superpower, which it is. And it was meant to increase the welfare of its citizens and maybe citizens of countries neighboring mm-hmm. the European Union on the basis that, you know, economic cooperation is going to make us all better off. The assumption that we're going to live in a realist world, right, where national interest will be reasserted, where nationalism will be on the rise, where authoritarianism will be on the rise. This wasn't the world that Europeans actually thought of as possible. And now they're making this very hard transition of trying to understand where they are and what sort of cards they can play in a geopolitical environment that doesn't suit their original purpose yeah it's interesting that you're mentioning this and obviously there's many factors from the outside that come into play but when you're looking also internally uh, i mean just ideologically there's a huge shift and one could argue that it's normal i mean we're seeing that in the u.s from east west north south you can't have one entirely purely ideological uh country it is normal to have these disparities um but we're talking about a huge shift where there you know there's a growing uh, trend in in populism, whether it's completely to the left or completely to the right, that is happening within the European Union, and that is creating a huge issue where the EU itself has to 
withhold certain subsidies to certain countries because they're not adhering to uh, certain values. And I'm talking about some Eastern European countries. We have the recent elections in um, in Italy that has brought in, uh, I don't want to say extreme right wing, depending on how you view it, but let's call it, a, you, you know, a, 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 a right wing government. Um, that has, again, shaken up the European Union ideologically. So how do you even uh, begin to to bring everyone back to the table and to the to the commonalities that you mentioned of the values that uh, European Union was initially designed on? Mm. Those trends are, are uh, increasing, right? You mentioned Italy. Uh, since yesterday, Sweden has a new right-wing government supported for the first time by a far-right party. So I don't think these sort of trends are going to go, they're not going to go away. Really, they're not going to go away. The, the, let's take the migration crisis as an example, right? Because before we come up with any sort of prescription or idea about what needs to be done, first, I think we need to be realistic enough about where we are. And where we are is the migration crisis of 2015, 2016 may have subsided a bit, and it doesn't hit the headlines the same way because of the EU-Turkey deal and and because in Syria, in essence, the civil war has largely come to some sort of a conclusion, right, with Russia primarily being the winner of this conflict. But migration as such from the poorer parts of the world towards the richer ones, one of which is Europe, is not going to stop. Mm -hmm. This is the only certain thing. So the question then becomes, and this, I guess what I'm saying is this feeds into the popularity, right, of far-right, extremist, fascist, you call them whatever you like, parties. And so that's not going to go away. So what do mainstream parties do? Like, you know, what do the non-right-wing sort of fascist parties do? Up until now, if you look at the literature and sort of stuff that we do, if you look at center-right parties, the more moderate parties, what they have been trying to do was copy the discourse and the language and the policies of the far-right. And it hasn't served them very well at all. They've only made the far-right more popular. So Clearly, that's not one avenue towards which one should go, unless they want the far right even stronger. So my point is, the democratic world, let's call it this way, the, 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 the mainstream sort of serious parties, I think, need to do two things. The first is to stop imitating the language and the policies of the far right, because as I said, it hasn't served them. But the second, the second is to actually change policy in some respects. The idea that um, migration is a taboo subject, right? You don't talk about it because the moment you do, you're painted as far right, regardless of the policy content. This is something the European Union needs to, to overcome. It cannot continue with that. We have real policy challenges, particularly in large metropolitan urban areas across Europe and indeed beyond. You, you know that um, about Canada, I know it about the United States. There is a real debate to be had, and it, I think it needs to be frank and it needs to be honest. And I think that policies need to be designed and tailored according to the context. You can't have one size fits all policy on migration, for instance, but it needs to be a participatory sort of attempt. Mm -hmm. Up until now, citizens, locals, communities, whatever, that have been for one reason or another complaining about migration, who have seen migration as negative, have been shouted down, right? They have been told to know their place and that they're basically being racist. Sometimes they didn't even know they were, but they were told they are. I think that's not a recipe to, to, to move on 
with that. So we need to change that. Now, going back to what you said, okay, do you bring everyone on the table by saying context specific? No, of course not. It's, it's not going to be. You need to be based on certain values. You need to be based on certain principles. So if you think of Poland or Hungary, if you violate basic EU values, then there's a real problem because not because the EU are such is so precious. I don't think it is, right? Everything in life is transient. Everything begins and ends. It's not about the EU as, as a fetish, if you like, mm -hmm. but it is about the common values you defend. Because if countries can get away with, I don't know, massive human rights violations, for instance, what exactly is the point of having the European Union? Mm -hmm. you, you don't need to have it. We can go back to a world before the EU, which some people may wish to have. I don't. And that's why I'm saying if you have common values, you need to stand up for them. And you need to stand up for them in a way, and that's my last sentence on this, in which you need to combine the ability of national governments to do their thing, to be responsive to their people, to be shown to be in command and control, right? Not that Brussels is running your country. That, that's never going to fly. And we know this in Greece. We mm -hmm. know how hurtful it was when it appeared that governments were just puppets of certain institutions. So you can't go down that route. So there has to be national flexibility and the ability of national governments to decide, but within a common framework, within what you could call the European Union toolbox, out of which everyone would sort of, you know, maybe cherry pick and, and use the sort of tools they need to be successful. But doesn't that open uh, the, the the door to, well, I mean, the door has already been opened to 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 this new challenge and you you alluded to it a little bit before where you have to gauge now you have to you know what 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 weighs more the the you know the national politics of each country individually or that yeah. country's existence in a wider european union because when you have locally this rise in a certain ideology and naturally you would have the politicians kind of tend to that because you know, it's in their interest to win those elections or to serve that country. So they have to sort of satisfy the, the that trend or that growing uh, ideology, whether it's populism or whatever it is, um, or risk their career or whatever you want to call it, their future, because they want to adhere to to what the European standards are. I mean, isn't that like this? huge line like the, the a, a division on the ground where it's like, okay where, where do we belong uh, do we go along with our national interests and what the people are screaming at us for or do we um or do we face this uh and you know uh continue with uh the the values and the policies of the eu you know i think it doesn't have to be one way or the other like let, let, let me try and explain this. I mean, you're right. This is how things are working out today. Don't get me wrong. But I think that what, what, what is happening right now is deeply problematic in the sense that we think of political leaders, right, prime ministers and whatever, leaders of major parties, as exclusively as takers, right? They take their, their signals and their cues from the public through opinion polls, right, and, and, and similar. And then they have to adjust their policy to what appears to be popular, this is corrosive to democracy. Let's make no mistake. There was a time not that far ago, 
and, and this may make this sound very old, which I suppose I'm, I'm increasingly becoming. But, but the, the, you know, there used to be a time when politicians were, yes, takers, as you said, you need to reflect the popular will, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, there was something called leadership once upon a time. Mm-hmm. There was something called, right, what is in our national interest in terms of, say, migration or energy or climate change, you name it, is to follow this particular path. So my task as a leader is to convince and persuade as many people as I can that this particular path is the one we need to walk together. And that used to be the case in Europe and in North America and across the world. And it it worries me, it really does, that we've now moved to a mediatic society, to a 24-7 media society in which any political leader that tries to step outside of this sort of notion that, yes, I'm listening to you, is in all of a sudden, you know, condemned as not in touch. Now, this has nothing to do with what's happening in Britain right now, because I think their leadership is indeed out of touch for other reasons. But I, I guess I'm making a more general point, which is, I think there is a way out of this, you know, you, based on, on certain values of tolerance and openness, but at the same time, another value, which is solidarity in your community, right? And the idea of togetherness. I do believe there is a way of combining those values, George. I, I think politicians have it in them, and they should have it in them, to be able and combine them and offer security for their local communities and at the same time fight against racism and xenophobia, which we all know is harmful to liberal open societies. And, and, and also, just to go one step further, look, if they can't do it, they shouldn't be in politics. I mean, let, let's be very honest here. If politics is not in a position to solve your problems, it's worthless. Why do we have it? Mm-hmm. Politics is not supposed to be this career path of people that end up being leaders and then they end up in the private sector and become filthily rich. This is not what it's supposed to be. So I think you can do it. And if you can't, you might as well just change your occupation. It's interesting that you're mentioning that, and I want to come back briefly on the the topic of migration. Obviously, it's affecting uh, uh, Europe as a whole, uh, and I agree that it's not we're not close to seeing an end to that. Um, even if we put aside the conflict and the the, the war, which obviously uh, prompts these individuals to, to to flee and to become you know uh, refugees, we're talking about this new phenomenon now that is called the environmental refugees where people are fleeing their countries because they can no longer live they can no longer sustain themselves in the countries they're uh, they're from uh and i just want to touch upon what you said that this uh, migration uh challenge is going to perhaps continue for a long time even though like you're saying conflicts may have subsided you have other realities that may force people um, to seek new homes. Um, I think that's absolutely right. And there is also one more dimension to this I want to add to our discussion, which is that, you know, what we tend to see in the Western world, obviously, and we would begun through this, is the political effects of, say, you know, one million people in all of a sudden trying to cross your border and enter to your country, the rise of the far right, and everything that this that this entails. What we don't tend to look at is in fact that migration is fundamentally and first and foremost harmful and hurtful, not to the, well, this type of migration, I mean, uncontrolled migration and so on, is harmful 
to poorer states. The vast majority of, of migrants and or refugees, including environmental refugees that you alluded to, they have to be hosted in neighboring states because you know, there's no other way they can get to the rich West, right? Mm-hmm. Beat North America or Australia or, or Europe. So what do they do? They end up in very poor countries that simply lack the infrastructure and the capacity to take care of them. So what you have here is the perfect marriage, if you like, a catastrophic marriage of, of tendencies that are coming together. Climate change, which is the epicenter of this, Huge migration waves. The vast majority of people don't want to leave the place where they were born, right? They want to be where they are, but they can't. Mm -hmm. And the other major issue that dominated Western society's discourse before the pandemic, inequality. So you've got environmental catastrophe, migration, and inequality all merged together through what you just mentioned. And I think that the only way out of this, surely, is, is, is some form of global coordination. And this is why I'm glad not to be a youngster anymore. I'm glad I'm not a teenager, to be very frank. You know why? Because it is obvious to me that the problem is global and it's not going to go away anytime soon, certainly not during the, the duration of this century. But the one set of institutions, the global coordinating institutions that were put in place after 1945, premised on the assumption that we do have certain global public goods and there are certain global public problems that we all need to tackle, right? Think of the World Trade Organization, think of the United Nations, think of, you know, the IMF and the World Bank. They don't seem to be up to the task anymore. And again, we can talk about this for hours as to why, Mm -hmm. but the fundamental point is they don't work very well at all. So, At the moment when you need global coordination more than anything else to minimize the cost for the poorer countries, right, to make sure that the rise of populism and authoritarianism is minimized in the rich countries, at exactly that moment, global international organizations are falling short. So what's the way out? I don't know. That's very interesting. It's very interesting, and it def- it'll definitely be um, the challenge going forward. I think for the next generations, which I understand why you don't want <laughs> you don't want to be young anymore. Uh, l- let's talk. Um, let's keep talking about these challenges specifically in Europe, because very recently there was this creation of a new body, uh, the European Political Community, which somehow opened up the doors i mean it's not european union but it's kind of like an extended european family uh welcome to all um is that good is do you see a future in that what is the real reason behind it and what what are the prospects for it um yeah where where is that going to end up Mm -hmm. a couple of points about this george the first is it's not really a very new initiative so it was tried and tested again by the French. I mean, this one, this one is a French initiative. The old one was also a French initiative about 30 years ago. It failed. So I don't know if that says anything about this one, but it's good to keep in mind that it's not unique in that sense. Second thing about it is, yes, it's, it's, I think it is an attempt, uh, and it's not accidental that it has been sort of propagated by France so much. France is the one country that under the leadership of Macron, at the very least, tries to talk about the EU in political terms, right? So 
the whole thing about strategic autonomy, decoupling from the United States security umbrella and all the rest of it falls under this category. So it's, it's no accident France is behind it. Now, what's the plan? I think it's very early days and it's impossible at this moment to gorge the possibilities of success. But I suppose the more interesting question is, what sort of community do they want to build up? It seems to me that at this moment, what Europe is trying to do is take sort of the initiative and say, look, I want to provide a forum in which rather diverse countries with which Europe has some form of loose relationship, be that Britain post-Brexit, be that uh, Turkey, which we all know has very tense relations with Europe, they should all fall under this you know, big umbrella and they should know that within the premise of the European political community, in certain political issues, we should at the very least talk to one another before taking an initiative and try to coordinate where we stand. I don't think that this is envisaged, and I hope it's not envisaged, as some kind of an alternative to the European Union or, you know, if you like, a parallel structure to it. The European Union is what it is, and it has its own problems and it has its own strengths. I don't think they're trying to replicate it through a loose association of states makes any sense whatsoever. If they envisage this as an attempt to try and, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, emphasize the geopolitics a bit more, right? To say that Europe is not only a, a large trading block, we can actually play a political role, then I think it would be welcome. And the reason why it would be welcome is, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is during all those crises we mentioned before, some of whom were you know, security oriented in nature, right? And some of whom really happened on the doorstep of Europe. Think of Syria, for example. The European Union has been completely absent. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely amazing. The, the sort of courses I teach as an EU specialist at university, including, you know, the common foreign and security policy, talk about the progress, and institutionally that is correct, the progress that Europe has been making in forging a common foreign security, whatever policy. In practice, it's been the biggest failure of them all. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people have been, the migration crisis was caused due, largely due to the Syrian civil war. The Syrian civil war is happening basically at the doorstep of the EU, and the EU has been unable to play any sort of mediation role, to play any sort of guarantor's role. So I guess what I'm saying is that if the EPC is envisaged as a baby step towards that direction, then it's highly needed because you can't just be a large trading block anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and if you like the war in Ukraine, which is causing this massive shift in German policy, right? The idea that you will have, as my German friends say, Wandel uh, Handel. So you will have change through trade, which has been the fundamental sort of foreign policy motto of Germany with regard to Russia, with regard to China and other other places has, has failed. So maybe maybe the CPC is now an attempt to say, right, maybe you can't have change through trade only. Maybe you can have change or some sort of reform through serious political engagement. Mm -hmm. Now, for the EPC to be successful in that respect, of course, there are so many steps that need to be taken. You, you really need to invest in this, right? You, you need to, to think about it in the long term. If it's only going to be a forum where leaders get the photo op they need for the next election, it's going to go nowhere. But mm -hmm. if they're going to decide, design it sort of from the, from the bottom up, maybe it will make a difference. 
I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the energy crisis right now in Europe. Obviously, given the, the situation in uh, in Russia and Ukraine, uh, the alarms uh, the, the the alarm signals have gone off to the desperate need of uh, alternative uh, sources of energy, perhaps coming from other places, not necessarily from Russia. Uh, I know that Canada has stepped in there, uh, trying to see if there's anything that uh, could be provided. Uh, but we're seeing uh, some interesting uh, effort in the southeast European, uh, specifically in Greece. Uh, I mean, this is an effort that's not new. They, 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 it's been years that they've been trying to uh, to work on um, on pipelines going from the Middle East through the European, uh, through the Mediterranean into uh, Greece, and then eventually th- into Europe. Um, is this the new challenge you think for Europe, uh, finding a way to sustain itself uh, in terms of energy? I definitely one of the biggest ones, right? I mean, they they have now come to a realization that dependence on, on Russian minerals, be it oil or gas, was a disaster. And for a very long time, through Nord Stream 1 and 2, um, there was this assumption that this will continue, you know, that the oil and gas will continue flowing, and Germany in particular, the economic superpower of Europe, will continue doing what it was doing, which was basically to prosper, um, enjoying, on the one hand, the security umbrella of the United States and the oil and gas flow of the Russian Federation, which made Germany, which allowed Germany to concentrate on its superb manufacturing and exporting capacity and made it next to China the world's biggest exporter. The difference being German products are, are very high value added and that made Germany very prosperous. Now, consider what sort of change Germany will need to undertake now if this sort of set of assumptions is now shattered, which it is. To go to the Eastern Med, George, um, I think it's very complicated. Um, what you need, I think, there is is a new grand bargain, basically. And what I uh, just be very straightforward in this, I think what you need is a new grand bargain sponsored by the United States, the only country that can actually sponsor such a bargain, and make sure that all sorts of diverse national interests of the countries in the region will be aligned on the direction of securing energy supply flowing to the West in return for security guarantees for every single one of those countries, be they NATO or non-NATO members in terms of their future prospects. We need a new grand bargain of security and prosperity for the entire region. Is it going to be easy to get there? It's going to be extremely difficult, but there may be some green shoots appearing. The Israel-Lebanon agreement, if it comes to fruition, if there is going to be indeed a maritime delineation of borders between countries that are essentially, well, technically at war and have had these huge differences between them, If they can work this out, that's going to be a massive bonus for the region. And then the sort of energy diplomacy you were alluding to may eventually come to being because certain countries, think of Turkey in particular, which is increasingly finding itself in isolation in the region, may need to start recalculating what is in their national interest, whether they want to be a partner with countries like Greece, Cyprus and Israel, for instance, Mm -hmm. in making sure that this sort of energy supply will go through. Of course, as I say, it's extremely complicated because we can be talking about this at a political level here. There is a very practical level down there, which is the feasibility, right? How much can you extract? Is it going to be enough? And will it 
how much will it cost to actually transport all this gas to European markets? I'm not sure we have an answer. Mm-hmm. So more of most of this discussion at the moment is theoretical than academic, i.e. less useful than practical. And therefore, we need to wait and see. But if political leadership can start thinking about this in ways which are going to go beyond their very immediate short-term interest, uh, then it could definitely be a route for the rest of Europe to take seriously. However, allow me to add a proviso in this in this part of our discussion, which is that Europe is quite desperate, and obviously there are reliable partners. You mentioned Canada, the United States, Norway. There are others who are less reliable, or let's say who are less, let's say, strongly aligned with what Europe does. And I'm thinking of places like Azerbaijan or Turkey. Is Europe going to close the door to them, given where it is? Of course not. Well, so, especially was sorry to interrupt you, especially now yeah. that you know the chessboard has gotten interesting. Where just a couple of days ago, at the time that we're recording, um, Erdogan and Putin had met and specifically agreed on shifting uh, an energy hub to uh, to Turkey. Of course, it's 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 still at the very beginning stages. I mean. Uh, it's, it's very preliminary. I don't. I'm not so sure if it will actually happen. But given the context, given the time that all this is happening, especially given what you were saying before, how Turkey has kind of isolated itself from, you know, the Western, um, uh, the Western world, be it you know the uh, U.S. or Europe, the fact that now there's this interesting proposition on the table that may shift certain interests. I don't know. I mean, again, it's still very uh, early in, in in its stages, but assuming that that were to happen, wouldn't that shift uh, tremendously the interests in that region? It, it would, absolutely. And it would also, if you like, reinforce a trend that we saw first materialize in what we were talking about before, namely the migration crisis, which is that what the European Union will do when everything has been said and done is try to make sure that its own public opinion and its own people will be appeased. I mean, think of the migration crisis. How was it removed from the headlines? Through the EU-Turkey deal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, at the time, there were organizations and some opposition politicians who were saying, well, what you're doing is you're externalizing migration policy to Turkey. And given all the problems we have, let me just say, let me be, be polite and say, given all the problems we have with Turkey, that's not necessarily a very good idea. Well, did that go far enough? No, it didn't. As long as it you know, vanished from the headlines, it was good enough. Now, given what you just said, absolutely correctly, if it was to materialize, I think what we will have is a repetition of the way in which the migration crisis was handled. In other words, you're going to have an externalization, this time not of migration policy, but of your energy security and energy policy needs, again, through Turkey, which of course, uh, translates into a very simple equation, Turkey's role, geostrategic, economic, security-oriented, gets being uh, ends up being upgraded once more. So, especially in places like Greece, those sort of considerations we need to take very seriously into account before designing next steps. It's interesting to me, and, and it's also fascinating to me, how you know, a continent like the European Union with all the resources and all the richness that it has is still very much dependent, especially with respect to energy, uh, to outside sources. 
and, and we're talking about just, I mean, it could be perceived as a detail, but it's a big detail to the point where the slightest uh, shift in relations can have the biggest impact in an entire continent. We're seeing it obviously with the with the with the conflict in um, in Ukraine and with uh, with Russia, how that immediately impacted uh, the 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 energy uh, situation. Now the dynamics with Turkey coming into the picture. Well, I mean they're not uh, they're not always on the same page, right? Uh, the EU and uh, and Turkey they always seem to find themselves an agreement. I mean Turkey has been very intelligent in their politics and placing their 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 chips. Uh, in a way where they can always get uh, the, uh, the 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 better end of the deal. At some point, isn't there going to be a, a wake up call so that they could be their they they can develop their own sources of energy and just have this sustainability mm. as a European uh, sustainability? Well, I think Georgina. On the one hand, you're right. It's quite surprising that they were so dependent on the other let, let, let's also just say you know some countries more than others right i mean mm -hmm. wh when we talk about energy dependence fundamentally we're talking about the elephant in the room which is always germany i mean uh, and germany has been dependent and, and i should also add this if you like maybe for the benefit of our viewers or listeners in terms of oh look at the germans you know they were so dependent on russia and now they realized they're not and now their big old friendship is coming to an end Let's be very clear about this. History matters, right? And, and political history matters. Germany developed a very special relationship with Russia and, and even with the Soviet Union, once the Cold War starting, started melting the ice a little bit, precisely because of, of the past, precisely because of the Second World War. So Germany is not the same as Britain. Germany is not the same as France in its relations with Russia because you know, it is still haunted by its past. I'm not trying to justify the dependence we're talking about. I'm trying to rationalize and explain it. So I think we need to be sympathetic to the argument that says everyone carries their own weight, right? And at some point, maybe that comes to an end and, and you indeed need to start designing your own, you know, your own way out of this. Now, in terms of how quickly things change that like you mentioned before, well, let's also be very realistic here. They changed because of Putin. I, I, I mean, you know, this is something we don't mention very much. And, and somehow we sort of assume that it's natural because, you know, an authoritarian leader would do it. But to be honest, it's not very natural to say, OK, you guys are backing the country I'm trying to invade. I'll cut off your gas, despite the fact that there are contracts and there are, you know, legal agreements and all the rest. So the fact that Putin's regime decided to go all gang-ho against the West is something that many in Europe, and that's maybe where their biggest fault lies, could not foresee. They thought, again, it's what I was saying before, George, you know, their world, uh, I began by saying, Europe's world is a world of agreements, of multilateralism, of order, of the rule of law, right? These sort of things. And when people step out of this, as leaders like Putin or President Erdogan in Turkey or others are doing, they're caught by surprise. They're not really sure what is happening. So most of our discussion today, right, on, on Europe's challenges, I think is really boils down to the fact that we are now at a historical moment in time when very many of the assumptions that carried Europe through, they, they're just not valid anymore. And, and now they're trying to figure out, okay, we need to be more realistic, but how do we do this, right? Their biggest 
weapons in their arsenal, if you like, has always been trade, law, economics. And now it's about energy security and geopolitics and, you know, averting war in the Europe on the European continent. These are things that Europeans are simply not prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and having said all that, I'll, I'll finish this part of our discussion with this sentence, which is, out of all this misery caused by what may be a very harsh winter, comes, does it not, uh, a blessing in disguise? Because Europe now has to accelerate the transition to a different, greener way of powering its economy. It has now become inevitable. And that is going to be, I hope, a motivating force for its business, for its engineers, for its entrepreneurs to actually try and, and step up to the plate, step up to the challenge and allow for, for, for citizens and consumers and firms on the continent a greener, better, more secure and definitely more reliable future. It's interesting that you bring that up. I, I wanted to bounce uh, right off to uh, Greece and the important role it's playing and especially where it's situated, where obviously it's at the intersections of so many geopolitical challenges as well. Uh, we're seeing uh, mounting tensions in the east, Eastern Mediterranean, but also with respect to the changes that you're referring to, the role that Greece can play is is a quite interesting one. It is. Uh, and I think it has been, in terms of its foreign policy approach and, and the way in which it's trying to internationalize its appeal, it's been doing a pretty good job. Um, over the last few years, uh, there has been this sort of wave of, of a more extrovert attempt by by state authorities and especially by the private sector. Uh, as you know very well, um, you are an example of this. I'm an example of this. Um, Greece has a lot of capital, right? Human capital abroad. And it has a lot of human capital domestically in the country as well. I think there has been a concerted attempt to try and bring the two closer together over the last few years, and this is starting to bear some fruit. Um, now, let's not overestimate what Greece can do. If you take a bird's eye view, this is a small country in a very important location that has a few cards to play, not too many, but my assessment is it's playing those cards quite effectively for the time being. The biggest issue for me, George, in, in, in the way in which Greece comes to prosper going forward is to never lose sight of the need for long-term strategic thinking, hence strategy international, right? I think the attempt here is to try and make sure policymakers in Greece and across the world adopt a long-term view. And, and I think that that may be missing a little bit still. It, ha- it had been missing in the past, and I think it's still missing. Greece is able to, to score tactical wins over a whole variety of fields, particularly on the diplomatic field in recent years. I don't think it has adopted a long-term perspective in terms of the ways in which it can combine security with economic prosperity in a very volatile world. Now, it's not alone. Most countries have not been able to do this. So this is not to pass a bad assessment on you know, their government and their politics. But it is to say that they need to step up to a new, very complicated, you know, uh, reality and 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 to do that, they need to think of whether they want the country to be in 2050, right? They want to adopt a decades-long vision of how the country combines security and prosperity. And I don't think that's too difficult to do. And I think the brains are there. 
They just need to step up to the plate and be a bit more courageous about their convictions. How does that plan come to fruition when it has to deal with numerous challenges, especially most of them coming uh, from Turkey? Um, and of course, the challenges right now with uh, with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, I, I mean, let's consider also the fact that Greece is part of the Balkans, right? And it's probably the most tumultuous region, I would say, in Europe. Um, how do you how do you balance all that? Um, look, I think there have been important steps taken already. Um, let me give you one scenario. Um, let me give you one sort of uh, idea here. Greece has had, as you very well know, huge problems with uh, our neighbor on the north, uh, North Macedonia in the past. For better or worse, the issue was resolved just before the pandemic hit and just before the geopolitics of the region became extremely complicated as a result of the encroaching of authoritarian states in the former Yugoslav space. Imagine a scenario in which Greece had not resolved the problem and tension was continuing up there as well as across the Aegean. Mm -hmm. It would have been almost impossible. So what I'm saying is they are able to handle challenges. I, my assessment of handling that issue is generally a very positive one. We need to start closing down on those issues where, you know, problems can persist and, and keep the country back. We need to double down on our efforts to resolve bilateral problems in our neighborhood. And, and yes, that includes Turkey too. It is almost impossible to do it today. There are election cycles in Turkey. There is an election cycle in Greece. I understand that politically that's not realistic. But again, if you think about this in the long run, to combine security and prosperity, we are the sort of country, Greece is the sort of country that can take the initiative, that can be confident in its ability to provide a better future for its people because its people, for all the problems they face, have a higher standard of living than anyone in their surrounding neighborhood. And, and you know, that's that's a credit to the policies followed until now. Well, we can double down on those and, and, and make sure that over time and with long-term thinking firmly entrenched in the way in which we handle those bilateral or multilateral challenges, we can we can go ahead of you know, get ahead of the competition, so to speak. I want to talk to you about leadership, just going back to what you were saying before about how Uh, incredible it is to be witnessing all these conflicts and not seeing any tangible leadership um, taken by countries that have the means. Uh, and one example, obviously, is what's happening now in Ukraine and Russia, where. And I'm going to I'm going to put this, you know, quote unquote, actions are taken, but there's no boots on the ground. So there's a lot of talking, not a lot of uh, not a lot of acting. We're seeing that also from the e uh, from the U.S. Um where there's a lot of murmur, there's a lot of sanctions, there, there there's a lot of material aid, uh, but not more than that. And I was just curious to know, uh, to know a little bit, you know, from your, from your perspective, your opinion mm. on why is that probably left always as a last resort, you know? Uh, and and mm. I, I guess it makes sense to try to resolve this through, uh, 
through diplomacy. But um, you know, what's the timeline? When 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 do you tell yourself, okay, that's done, let's move to more concrete action? Because we are seeing this more and more. You mentioned also the, the Syrian conflict, uh, and it seems as though there's always this reluctance in taking concrete leadership uh measures to confront these uh situations. I, I tend to think of politics in general and of the Ukraine war in particular along the lines of who benefits uh, and, and why is a particular situation preserved. And I think in your podcast, we're allowed to be provocative, right? And, and throw away the academic hat a bit. And let me just ask, in, in the spirit of provocation, is Europe being the useful idiot in the Russia-Ukraine war? Yes or no? Let me just throw this out there for our listeners. And, and why do I say this? The United States has adopted a position which, to me, is pretty realistic and pretty much firmly grounded on, on you know, the realities on the ground. And let's be no doubt, George, for Putin, who has caused this war, their interlocutor, their, you know, Russia's interlocutor is the United States. It's not Europe. It has never been Europe. It's not about Europe. Europe is an aside to this, Right. Obviously, the war is happening on European soil, and of course, the Ukrainian people are the ones suffering most of the consequences of it. Let's not take anything away from this. But if you think about it in geopolitical terms, the sanctions, the, the noise, and so on, who benefits is one question from what is happening, and in particular, the European stance, and who is being a useful idiot in, in allowing for this war to continue? Now, I think what the European Union has done in terms of its normative sort of stance is obviously very correct. I mean, we were talking about values before. How on earth would you ever say that one country can invade another and you can look at the other the other way? You would never be allowed, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Now, going back to the point you made, which I think is very well taken, is there any sort of initiative? Is there any sort of diplomatic activity behind the scenes or otherwise that would aim at making some sort of a, of a timeline concrete that would be aimed at minimizing the misery that people live day in, day out. There doesn't seem to be any at the moment. And my worry is, you remember back in the summer, there was this big debate, will Europe sanctions hurt Europeans more than they hurt the Russian Federation? Right. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that we're getting perilously close to that point. And if winter proves to be harsh, we don't know. It's rumored that it will be mild, but if it is going to be harsh in Europe, the sort of reactions we started our conversation from, you know, the rise of populist voices in Europe, those that will call for an end of the sanctions and which will in effect justify in one way or another um, what has been happening until now will become even stronger. And that, that's a risk. And I think that's a risk as Europe you can't afford to take. Others can afford to take it. Mm -hmm. If the United States says, you know, I don't want to be in direct confrontation with Russia, they say so because they've got thousands of nuclear warheads and they know exactly that the Russian Federation does the same. You know, so this is the Champions League. These guys are playing on a different league. Mm -hmm. If you are Europe and you're feeling the material consequences of this and you're hosting millions of refugees from Ukraine, your role, I think, needs to be quite different. Your role is not to be playing second fiddle to the United States. You can work alongside the United States, and that's important. 
to strengthen transatlantic cooperation, yada, yada. But if you want to be a serious geopolitical entity of any dimension, you need to differentiate your role. You need to be proactive. You need to be on the negotiation, well, pushing for the negotiation table to become active again, uh, and so on and so forth. How long do you think before uh, President Biden actually takes a more active uh, role? There were some rumors that started leaking last week to the effect that uh, they're working on a meeting between Biden and Putin. Uh is that all? Uh, uh, is that all up in the air? I mean, is it real? Is it at all uh, going to happen, or is it? They're just, you know, it's just test balloons. Look, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know anything more than you do. My opinion is a lot will depend on how the situation on the ground will continue evolving. If we continue seeing those tactical losses that may have a snowball effect on the Russian army. Um, I think Putin may take the initiative. It seems to me that the United States administration is playing this correctly because they know that ultimately Putin may be forced to come to some sort of a negotiation. Uh, I think what they are probably trying to do, or I think they should be doing, is isolate those forces that say no talk until total capitulation. Western military aid, especially American aid, has been very helpful for the Ukrainian forces. And that's something that the West should rightly be celebrating. But as you say, there's a time for everything. I hope that this time is nigh, the time of negotiation. Uh, and that would offer a prospect for the Ukrainian people, first and foremost, of at least trying to, you know, recuperate a little bit some of the massive losses that they have had to endure over the last eight, nine months. Because the other element that many are, 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 you know, seem to either neglect or not really focus on, and we saw this at the very beginning, this huge uh, rise in Ukrainian pride, right, uh, during this conflict, which I'm sure has played a tremendous role in uh, in in troop motivation, will that eventually decrease, and will people get tired of the situation, and will there be a different uh, sort of dynamic coming from within Ukraine as well? I personally would not think this would be possible anytime soon. Um, and, and it seems to me that what the Ukrainian, well, I'm not sure about the Ukrainian military, right? I, I'm in no way privy to what's happening there. But when it comes to civilian morale, I think sustaining this at a high level is definitely possible. Not only because there have been tactical wins on the actual battlefront, which feed back into the major cities, but also because Russian desperation through this new bombing campaign on major urban centers actually seems to be revealing how weak they feel and how vulnerable the Russians feel at this moment in time. So I think with, with Western support, the Ukrainian people will be able to persevere. Um, and there may be a moment in time, hopefully very soon, in which the Russians will realize that not only their original plans have fully failed or, you know, occupying Kiev in 72 hours or whatever, but that at the same time, it's not in their interest to be the world's international pariah. It's not in their interest to try and change school maps and to show annexed areas as parts of the Russian Federation. They don't need that. Russia has a role to play, a very important role to play in securing world peace going forward. It's not for them to be the world's bully. And I hope that their leadership will see through this very soon, too. 
Very interesting. So many things to take away from this uh, discussion. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know that you're a very busy man. Thank you again so much uh, for taking the time to uh, share your knowledge with uh, the listeners and the viewers. I want to remind everyone again to head on over to any audio platform, download the podcast, rate them, uh, subscribe on YouTube. Uh, Dimitri, thank you so much again for uh, for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, George. It was a pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. 